Oh boy, I probably have the wrong one at home. <laughs> You're good. All right, let's start with a word of prayer. Gracious Lord, thank you for the opportunity to um, dig our roots more deeply in your truth, in your word. Bless us today as we're learning more about the gift of Scripture and how it points us to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is week two. So some of you guys weren't able to be with us last week. We had a chance to, to listen to it. We talked about sola gratia, uh, which is being saved by grace alone. So previously on Roots of Faith. Uh, we talked about the danger of rootlessness, that if we lack those deep roots, that we can just be tossed to and fro by any wind and waves in our society. We need roots, that sense of who I am, where I come from, where I'm going. One of the things we said last week with respect to sola gratia, being saved by grace alone, it runs counter to this notion, and we, we pointed out last week, Arbeit macht frei, just this chilling phrase actually on the gates of concentration camps, which means work makes you free. It's part of the lie, the lie that Satan wants to tell, <laughs> the lie of what we call ladder theology, this idea that we can just climb up to God through our own efforts. So, no, playing with my PowerPoint uh, animation there. By contrast, to recognize that we are saved by grace is to live the receptive life. As Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. We come simply with those empty cupped hands to receive his gifts. That's the essence of what it means to be saved by grace. Today, then, we look at the next of those solas, sola scriptura. It's a little bit different from sola gratia because with sola gratia, sola fide, we say we're saved by grace, we're saved by faith. Sola scriptura doesn't necessarily mean we're saved by scripture, we're saved by Jesus, but sola scriptura, scripture as the, the final word, the, the norm, the thing that we test everything, everything else against. And so as I get into it, I want to share a movie clip from one of my all-time favorites, you too. It's because you're a little bit younger than me, but this, uh, this is from Home Alone, which was the first movie that I saw in the theaters when I was like seven years old, when it came out. So just a brief clip here from, this is Kevin McAllister after he's just realized that he's at the house all by himself. He has that reaction and that response because of all of those voices that he'd been hearing, right? Those voices that tell him that he's not good enough, that he doesn't measure up, what a failure he is, all of those things. And the fact of the matter is that we all have these voices that we are dealing with, struggling with in our lives, in our world. So what are some of the loudest voices that we hear in our world today? Just generally speaking, what are some of the loudest voices that are out there really making sure that they get heard? Political voices, for sure. Talking over top of one another, right? Often saying conflicting things. Yeah, other voices? 
it like maybe like a community voice? Like if you think about social media, right? Sure. Ever, I mean, we essentially create the own narrative for that. But yeah. Um, yeah. So there, that, there can be that community voice or, or that group think that can yeah. come along too. Yeah, with it for sure. Yeah. Other voices. There's the advertising. Like. Oh yeah. You're not thin enough. Or yep. you're not Pretty right. enough. Or, yes. Entertainment. Entertainment. The... Yep. Big cultural voice, right for now, sure. I see. Yeah, so yeah, entertainment, advertising, social media, politicians—all of these kind of big voices in the world, as well as the ones that, like Kevin, experienced that we have in our own lives, right? Maybe it's the voice of a of a parent in your ear, either like literally still chattering, <laughs> or things that you hear from from when you were a kid of ways that you didn't quite measure up. Maybe it's the, the voice of a teacher you had that was really difficult. Or it can be positive, too. These are mostly negative examples. It could be positive, too. But many times when we think about these, all these voices, all these things, clamoring to have that authoritative voice in our lives. And in many respects, Satan goes behind that. And he wants to be able to exploit those things in order to accuse you and me, to have that, that yammering voice in the back of our mind that says, you don't measure up, you don't, you're not good enough, how could God ever love you? Well, Sola Scriptura says, and why it matters, is that Sola Scriptura, it's the first blank on your handout, it answers the question of who gets the last word. Who gets the last word? At the end of the day, whose voice is definitive? Whose word is able to put a period after it, right? To say, this is truth. This is what we, we hang our hat on. This is what we cling to. That's where Sola Scriptura comes in so that we know we have an authoritative voice that speaks to us. Let's uh, open uh, the Bible, look at some scriptures here. So uh, Revelation chapter 12. Yeah. So last book of the Bible, turn to Revelation 12. So uh, last week in the church year was the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels. It's one that uh, often gets overlooked, not, you don't hear a whole lot about, but it's a really cool one. Um, and when we were in England, we saw that many churches are uh, St. Michael Church. And we found out about that. The reason is because anytime, what that tells you is that anytime a church was dedicated on top of a former um, site of pagan worship, they named it after St. Michael because it was like this triumph of Christ and his angels over the minions of the evil one. It's like, that's pretty sweet. Um, you know, most churches in America are just like, oh, First Baptist. You know, it's like, oh, we're so unimaginative. But um, Trinity Lutheran, yes. All right. Tw <laughs> Revelation 12, uh, starting at verse 7. This is this picture of what's happening in heaven with the coming of Christ. Okay, it's a revelation of that. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, that is, the devil. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. 
And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So this passage, arresting passage, tells us a couple of things. First of all, that Satan is, his name means Hasatan in the Hebrew, means literally the accuser. That's his fundamental job. That's what he's always wanting to do, is to get in our heads, as the kids say nowadays, to live rent-free, right? He's going to live rent-free in our heads and remind us of all the ways that we are falling short of the glory of God. But when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes, he fights back against the evil one. Now he has quieted and silenced that accusing voice so that now the voice that we hear is not the voice of, of failure and accusation, but the voice of forgiveness and affection given to us in Jesus. See? He says, this is my beloved. You belong to me. That's why it matters then that we have this sola scriptura, this defining voice, so that we know when and where we're hearing from, from God and his speaking to us. Scripture has uh, passages about itself, and this is many times where we'll, we'll go to um, to talk about Scripture. Now, it's interesting, though, in the New Testament, when it talks about Scripture, it means what part of the Bible, generally? The Old Testament. For, you know, they, they weren't like, and now let me continue writing my Scripture. Like, were they mindful? For instance, was um, the Gospel writer John, was he mindful that he was writing Holy Writ, sacred text? I think he had a sense of it, for sure. But, I mean, is anybody going to walk around and be like, hey, you know, I'm divinely inspired, and, you know, your wife's did, like, uh, not so fast. Yeah. Did anybody know they were writing something for the Bible when they wrote it? Yeah, so did anybody know they were writing something for the Bible when they wrote it? I'm going to say not really, not fully. Yeah, yeah because yeah, it wasn't yeah, like... But, you get a commission, you know, like exactly. uh, God's like, hey, listen, I'm going to, you know, I think you'd be really good for this, Matthew. So, so basically yeah. you write something that you're feeling or God imparts on you. This is, and yes. then everybody else decides that it's true or. Well, this is great, Jeff. You're getting ahead of us a little bit, you're, but you're right on the right path. Like, how do we know what makes for scripture? I'm going to answer that question in just a moment. Good. Hi, Beatrice. So oh, she's got jinxed, and so she needed me to say her name. That's why. <laughs> That's how it works at our house. You get jinxed. Okay. You're you're silent until somebody says your name. So. When was the Old Testament all put together? Oh, good. Yeah. So the Old Testament was put together before the time of of Jesus. So that that what we call the canon is the fancy term means literally like a rule, but it's um the it's the authoritative books, and so. The canon of the Old Testament, I believe, was put together already like the second century BC, because then what we call the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, and that became practically holy writ in its own right, um, was written about that time. So it had to have been assembled by then with some question marks, just like there was with the New Testament on a couple of books. Are they in or are they not? But when we talk about like, maybe you're wondering about like the Apocrypha and these additional books for those who grew up Catholic. Um, you know, they have these extra books like deleted scenes or something that they include in their Bible that, that we don't have. And these are all books that were written between the last Old Testament book that was written, which uh, I believe is Malachi, um, and then, you know, the, the coming of Jesus. So about a 400-year gap. So those apocryphal books were written somewhere in there um, after that canon's formalized. 
Catholics include those books. Lutherans and other Protestant Christians don't. They're not heretical. I mean, I've, I've, I've read most of them, if not all of them. Um, so they have good stories. Yeah, I yeah. was listening to them. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. it's interesting. And Luther and other church fathers would quote from them. Luther would say, yeah, they're useful books. You know, they don't uh, establish any core Christian doctrine. Um, they're just, we don't put them at the same level. Yeah. yeah. All right, so just a couple of, of verses on Scripture. First of all, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy 3, and we've already kind of danced around one of these um, key concepts when we talk about Scripture, which is that it is inspired, inspired. And in 2 Timothy 3, um, verse 16, at least in the ESV, it doesn't use the word inspired, but it uses another phrase. Let's see if you can pick up on what it is. So verse 16, 2 Timothy 3, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All right, so it doesn't use the word inspiration there, but what does it use that might get, get us at that idea of inspiration? Breathe. Breathe, yes. Yep, so when it says all scripture is breathed out by God, this is a cool Greek word here. I'll just write it in kind of English. Theopneustos. Okay, so it's like a compound word. So theo uh, is the Greek word for God, theos. And then pneustos is like uh, pneumonia, right? It's um, the breathing. Pneumonia is like bad air. Of the lungs. Of the lungs, yeah. yeah. Or uh, the breathing. So in this case, um, the pneustos is the, the breathing of God, okay? So that he is the one who's breathing in the scriptures. He is breathing through them. So inspiration carries through this etymology to inspire is literally to breathe into, okay, to breathe into. So that's where we get this idea. When you hear that scripture is inspired, it's this notion that God is breathing into it. Second Peter 1 has a similar idea. Peter talks about how um, the prophets were carried along. They didn't write out of their own interpretation, but they were carried along by the power of the Spirit. So when we talk about Scripture as being God's inspired word, this is what we mean. He's breathing into it. Now, how does that work? What does that look like? Um, I, I go to a couple of artists right here to, to imagine this. So this is from um, two paintings from the, uh, the great painter Rembrandt. Okay? Rembrandt has a, a pair of paintings, one of them on St. Matthew and the other on St. Paul. And I, would, I like to use these as two um, contrasting pictures of how divine inspiration works. And this kind of gets to your question a moment ago, Jeff. So let's take a look at this. I want you to see what differences you notice about. So first, his painting of St. Matthew. So there's Matthew as an old dude, and he's got over his shoulder what looks like an angel. And the angel is just whispering into his ear. He's like, yes, and what is that? Blessed are the poor. Okay, I'm getting it now, yes. Like he's just kind of almost a medium who is simply the, the instrument that was writing down this kind of direct divine communication. That's one model for understanding inspiration. Same artist though, Rembrandt, also did this painting of St. Paul. And notice, here's St. Paul, and I don't know, how would you describe Paul in this painting? He 
looks like he's stricken with writer's block. He's stricken with writer's <laughs> block. That's right. Like, oh, gosh. It's so hard. You know, he's really vexed and frustrated. There's no sense that God is just like, all right, Paul, here's what you got to do. He's just, he's trying to find the, the right words and to communicate. Now, which one of these do you think is the more accurate representation of divine inspiration? The one on the left or the one on the right? Is it a matter of just getting that direct download from the Holy Spirit? Or is it a matter of you, human person, are wrestling through and coming up? It's both. Yes! Yes. Absolutely. God works through, God works through means. This is a, a fundamental tenet, especially in our Lutheran tradition. We talk about how God's always working through means, through instruments. Whether you're talking about the Lord's Supper, he works through the, the means of bread and wine or holy baptism, through the, the means, the instrument of water. So also when it comes to the, the composition, the writing of Holy Scripture, and this is different from uh, Muslims, for instance, because Muslims will say, well, the, the Quran, those revelations drop down directly from heaven. And that this is what Muhammad was doing, is he was just frantically writing down what was directly dropped down from the skies. Uh, by contrast, the Christian tradition recognizes <clears throat> these books of the Bible, they bear the, a very human stamp. Matthew is different from Mark, is different from John. God was using the unique capacities and capabilities, the experiences and the knowledge, the language. The language of John is very different from the language of Matthew, for instance. Um, but at the same time, there is a divine authorship in, with, and under all of it, right? That God is authoring all of scripture even as he's working with those human authors. So questions or thoughts, reflections about that? It's kind of a big idea and it's one that's like, how does how does that work? We don't know exactly how that how that works, but this is so yeah. I I can grasp that, but it's you know either giving right to you or you got to struggle to get it. Yeah. The tougher part for me with the gospels is like Jesus was teaching for a while. Yeah. There was a lot. There had to have been more. Yeah. Than is in here. Right. And like. Where's my the rest mind, of it? My mind goes to like um, history of the world with Mel Brooks and like <laughs> Moses dropping a tablet and they're like, well, we got 10 now. <laughs> right, yeah. Where's the, where's the rest that we don't have? Right. Right, and like it came from Jesus, so it had to be pretty good. Yeah, exactly. And like, like so I'm, I feel like I'm missing out on something good in a way, but... Sure. No, I, I would say you're not wrong. And John, at the end of his gospel, he concedes as much. This verse always kind of cracks me up. This is the last verse of the gospel of John. He says, Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. <laughs> it's like, that's awesome, John. Do you want to give us a follow-up? Can we get a sequel? Like, um, I mean, what's holding you yeah, back? Not, not to be continued. Right, no to be continued. And it really doesn't, I mean, part of it might be that papyrus is very expensive. Like, it's not like you can just type on your keyboard. But. Well, it's funny that the Gospels all tell the same stories. Sure. Too. Right? Yeah. But with slightly different yeah, emphases. And I, and I yeah. understand that because like, when you have witnesses to an accident, yeah. they all see things differently, but right. the same thing. But it's funny that, it's not funny, I don't mean that. It's no, no. Yeah. interesting that, um, like he said, there's so much 
why didn't they all tell even different yeah. stories? Why right. Just, did they all get together and right. decide to say the same stuff? No. Or, you know, so is that from God that they yeah, the I, stories? Yes. I mean, I I don't know what else to say, but yeah. No, but I mean, he, you know, that, he, that interesting that they all right? tell the same. Is but they're different it angles. More, um, well, I think it. Yes, I think it does underscore the legitimacy, the yeah. credibility of yeah. it. The mm-hmm. fact that no two of them are exactly the same, yeah. right? If they're all exactly the same, you so, think, oh, they all got They all other. corroborated and yeah. hold right. that thought, Jeff, for a second. Only, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Luke has the most fleshed out, if I might put it that way, birth narrative. Matthew mentions it. It's not even in Mark or John. Um, John talks about uh, how Jesus was there in the beginning was the word. The other gospel writers don't put that way. They're complementary is, is yeah. the point. Like there are things that are in one. I mean, in many things they overlap, of course. Right. And in all of them, Jesus dies and comes back again. Like that's important. Um, but uh, there's, a, there's a unique angle of vision that's provided by each of them. Yeah. yeah just, no, okay. All right. Good. Jess, we figured out all, everything while you were gone. So. <laughs> Um, this is a, a subtle point, but one that bears mentioning, which is that <clears throat> when we say sola scriptura, that doesn't equal, that doesn't mean solo scriptura. What I mean by that is we, we say that scripture is the final authority, has the last word, but that doesn't mean that we don't read any other books or that we can't learn from um, other, other books about our faith or um, things that have been written through the ages, through the generations. I knew a young man once who, he took this position. He's like, listen, the Bible's the only book I read. I don't, read any, I, don't, I don't need any other teachers. I've got everything that I need right here. It's like, well, that's really admirable. I don't think that's realistic. That's not the way that things actually go. Um, scripture has the last word, but that doesn't mean that we have to denigrate or deny or ignore you know, a guy like Martin Luther, for instance, like you wrote some really good stuff. Like, we want to learn from that and grow from that. Doesn't mean that it's scripture. Last word, not the only word. Last word, not the only word. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what I want to do is kind of walk us through some of these other words and authorities that we do use, and rightly, that we're, we're right to do so. So, scripture alone is not equal. We'll call these like our secondary authorities. I want to lift up three secondary authorities for you. Things that we listen to that have an influence on our faith, but that don't have the same, don't carry the same weight as scripture does. Okay? So the first one, you can see from this creepy picture, is reason. Okay? So human reason is an authority in the sense that we use our human reason in order to make sense of the things of God. So can you think of an example of ways that we use human reason to try and, you know, understand God or the things of God? What, what might be an example of that? Like apart from scripture. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so <laughs> what's an example of a way that we use human reason to understand God or the things of God? Like not using the Bible per se, but like... Yeah, says math teacher. Yes, math, geometry, sciences. These are, are, are good and appropriate disciplines, ways in which we apply our human reason to make sense of God's world. Yeah. He, he gives us like emotions that drive a lot of our reasoning. Oh, that's good. And we'll get to that in just a second, actually. Um, <laughs> okay. 
but we're not ne- we're not nearly as reasonable as we like to think we are. Yeah. Everybody likes to think like I'm perfectly reasonable and logical. Not exactly the case, but to the extent that we are, um, that's appropriate. Jesus says, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength." God's given us minds. He's given us reason. He's given us the capacity to understand to solve problems. It's appropriate. It's a good thing. We don't have to push back against or fight against it. The problem is just when it becomes uh, too authoritative. Okay? So go to Genesis 3, where we see how the devil tries to abuse this gift of, of human reason. All right, so Genesis 3, very familiar passage here, says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right. Notice how the serpent, Satan, is trying to use reason in order to separate this woman, Eve, from God. Did God really say? Like, that's when reason is getting dangerous, is when we use reason to say, well... But did God really say that? Like, are we sure? Uh, maybe we want to not quite take that so seriously. People do this in any number of different ways. And that's the way that reason gets abused. When, uh, I mean, the most obvious example is when, we, um, when science is pitted against faith. And people will say, well, science tells us, and therefore, you know, there's no God or something like that. I mean, to use the most extreme kind of example. It's like, well, wait a second, science is good. Like, we can be thankful for that discipline of understanding God's world, but it's just a category mistake, misunderstanding to say, oh, well, our human reason applied through the sciences somehow disproves God. Like, no, that's not what it does. What science can do is make sense of what God has made, but it doesn't exist to try and, I mean, it, it can't show us that God who God's characters are, whether or not he exists, okay? So we, we celebrate reason, we employ reason, but we want to keep it as a secondary rather than a primary authority, okay? All right, second secondary authority is we mentioned reason, but as Jeff was pointing out, we have not only reason, but also experience, emotions, or warm fuzzies. That's what we've got there in the picture. We use our emotions also as a way of how do we understand God? What is he up to? And <clears throat> I don't know, how, how might you hear somebody use their emotions as a way of kind of making sense of their faith or trying to, you know, d- decide, make decisions, this sort of thing? in a car accident, I should have died. There has to be a God. Okay, good. So just that, that experience, they've been through something really unique and they're like, man, I, I should have died. I'm still here. There's a God. Yeah, be a, a very positive example of how experience can lead you back to God. Yeah. Other ways? That experience, emotions, feelings? Somebody dies around you. 
Yeah. And you start thinking there is no God. Sure. It can, go, it can very much go the opposite direction as well. Yeah. I think sometimes people use uh, emotions as a reason to like leave a church, you know? Like, yes. I'm just sure. not really, you know, like feeling Jesus. On yes. Yep. And so therefore, I'm going to go worship at. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So you're just led by your feelings like, ah, if, if, it's, if I'm not feeling it, then it must not be real or God's not really there. There will be a similar kind of justification used sometimes for why somebody might leave a job or a relationship. Heard of that too, where it's like, well, you know, I was just feeling like God was telling me I need to dump your sorry behind on the curb. It's like, oh, wow. You know, I hear young people in particular. Well, you know, when I was in college, I was never... Uh, fortunately, I was never like the, the uh, victim or recipient of this, but I know friends like, well, she told me she dumped me because like, God told her. I'm like, wow, how did God tell her? That's tough. It's like, I just, she just had this feeling. No, that's a bummer. Um, too bad for you. Uh, but emotion, experience, feelings, again, this is a good gift of God. He's created us this way. Romans 8 says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, the spirit that he's given to us. That we're children of God, and if children, then heirs. That's that subjective experience and feeling of God's presence. It's good. As Lutherans, sometimes we're accused of not caring about emotions at all, that we don't care about feelings, and we're just very, you know, it's that German thing, right? And I'm like, listen, I'm Italian, so that doesn't apply here. <laughs> and, and in any case, like God has made us as not only rational, but also emotional creatures. And in both cases, they're not bad in themselves. We just always want to keep it in check with, uh, with Holy Scripture. Because you might get something like this from the Babylon Bee. Last week we had the onion. Here's Babylon Bee, like a Christian satire website. Man mistakes indigestion for pastoral call. After attending a particularly powerful missionary presentation at his church last week, Mark Gerber, 21, reportedly felt an undeniable burning in his bosom, which he took to be a sign of God's unmistakable calling for him to become a pastor. Unbeknownst to Gerber, however, the deluxe enchiladas he had consumed at lunch contained a large amount of tainted shredded beef, which was the actual source of the deep and powerful feeling of his bowels. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, poor Mark with the, uh, the bad beef. He might actually be called by God, but you, you can't just test it by feelings. It also has to be feelings normed against Scripture, his revealed word. All right, so the secondary authorities. We talk about reason, experience. The third one, which is the most religious one, is tradition. Religious tradition. Okay? Now, um, within this category of tradition, we would include... Pretty much any kind of secondary authority, whether it be like commentaries on the Bible, even I would say creeds are like a secondary authority because like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, those aren't in the Bible as we use them in church. They're all drawn from the Bible. They're biblical, but as they're like, there's no place like in, in Second Galatians where, oh, here's the Apostles' Creed, right? Second Galatians is not a book of the Bible. Um, so it's not, it's not in there anywhere. And so the, the creed in its own way is a secondary authority. Teaching of the church throughout the ages, secondary authorities. So is it bad? No, it's good. Praise God. Like we need those secondary authorities. Um, even in the scriptures, it kind of gestures toward this. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered, Greek word parodidomi is like a technical term for I'm handing down. I handed down to you 
like traditionally, as of first importance, what I also received, likewise, is a, a technical term, paralamano, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. What Paul's saying is, listen, he himself is the recipient of tradition, oral tradition, which then now is codified in scripture. But tradition as such is not a bad thing, and many times it's a good thing. So where does it become problematic? Well, as you might expect, it's when we put the tradition over scripture. Jesus speaks against this in the Gospels. He talks about the traditions of the elders that have been springing up where now people were setting aside the revealed word of God in exchange for the traditions, the teachings of the rabbis. Um, but that still happens today where um, people will, will put their traditions above Scripture. Um, there is a tradition uh, within, for instance, in, in Roman Catholicism, and I think um, Eastern Orthodoxy will subscribe to this as well. Matthew was asking me about Orthodoxy before for a study here, what they call the two streams idea. And, and the notion is that, well, God has given us these two streams for uh, you know, his uh, re re revealing of himself. The one stream is the Bible. Okay, Yes, it's good. But they would say the other stream is tradition. And just like you see in the picture, these two streams flow side by side. And we won't say never the twain shall meet. The hope, the idea, is that tradition you know, illuminates and interprets scripture and vice versa. But the problem is, you're like, okay, so which one gets, as we started with, the last word? And too often through the ages, when tradition is held to be as equal to scripture, tradition is one the day. Or we, we fall back on tradition because in uh, many cases it's easier than it is to, to take what God has actually said. So that's where that becomes problematic. Which one gets the last word? By contrast, what we want to say is that the Bible is that last word. It is uh, over reason, experience, emotion, and uh, tradition. All of those things have their place, but they're secondary authorities. All right, I just threw a lot at you. Questions or comments about any of those secondary authorities, emotion, experience, reason, tradition? I wonder, um, I don't know if this is what you mean by tradition, but um, it could, I could be totally off base, but I notice in a lot of um, non-denominational churches, you know, they go to this, um, the, you know, the real um, modern worship and the, mm -hmm. you know, the song, like even in my Lutheran church in Iowa, they had a traditional service, and then they had a real modern yeah, service. Right, right. And I went to the modern service for a long time because it was 11 o'clock. Yeah, right. And I mean, I'll admit I'm a, not an early morning person. And so I would go to that, and a lot of my friends would. And the, so the music was very modern, like mm -hmm. rock and roll type stuff, you know. And they, they were trying to attract young people, right. which I understood. But they neglected to do like the creed, the Apostles' Creed. They they just left out yeah. all the stuff that's so important to me. Right. It was like, what's the point of this? You yeah. know, you sing a lot of these songs that are supposed to hit your heart. Sure. And they were leaving out so much the tradition. Yeah. 
And I was like, I was yearning to go mm. back to the 8.30 service. It was so hard to get up. <laughs> that is so early. Anyway, I'm yeah. so glad to come here. But, um, <laughs> 9.30, but, I just mean, as I'm God just saying, intended. This is a traditional Lutheran church. Yes, and yeah. It was attracting the young families. It really was. Well, yeah. And, but, um, yeah. you know, I, I thought, where is our tradition going? There was like nothing, there was no backbone sure. to these services, and it was upsetting me. And I don't know if this is what you're talking about. No, that's about. A, actually, that's a really helpful but, example. Um, because this tradition mm -hmm. was just going downhill right. in my church. Right. And I think a lot of these non denominational churches maybe have lost a lot of traditions because they're all going to these modern services. Right, sure. I don't know what you call them. Well, yeah, no, no. Contemporary. Contemporary or what have you. That's my word. So yeah. this, is a good, this is a good kind of case study because actually you can see within worship how you can go both ways and fall off the, the wagon either way. So in the one, like you're talking about, it can be where tradition is too much denigrated and just shuttled, like yeah, to the point that we're not even going to use the creeds. And I would say, man, that's, you're going too far. But I'm all for doing whatever you can in order to connect with people. Like you say, meet people where they are. I think that's good. But there are traditions that we should not be so quick to just get rid of, right? That are really valuable. And so, the, and uh, I think you kind of alluded to this, where they're almost can be kowtowing more to that uh, secondary authority of emotion and experience. And Jess was oh, kind of touching on that too. Yeah, the feeling of it. Um, but it can also be the case and you see this more often within Lutheran churches that go in the other direction where they're so gripped by their tradition yeah. that I they... I have to admit, the first, time, yeah. first few times I came here and it was with the other pastor, it was a little bit hard to uh -huh. adjust. Sure. You know, in the hymns, I'm not familiar with a lot of these hymns. Yeah. I'm getting a little more familiar now. Sure, yeah, yeah. But they were a little long and, you know, and I had a little adjustment. And we like our 15-verse hymns. Yeah, yeah, and I'm still adjusting, but I am getting familiar. But it is a big adjustment. Sure. And, uh, but I, I really do like the traditional so much more. It's, it takes me back to my childhood. Well, we're, when it's at its oh, best is it. when we're keeping the tradition, but it's lively. And an yeah. um, uh, author named Yaroslav Pelikan, he made a distinction between um, tradition and traditionalism. And he said, um, tradition is the, how, how did he put it? Um, he said that it is the, the living voice of the past, but that traditionalism is when it's just, it becomes a dead voice, where it just like, now we're just going to keep these things because that's the way that we've always done it. Like, new traditions are constantly yeah, made. Yeah, that's true. I'm, yeah. You know, like, we, what we call traditional yeah. wasn't. It wasn't at one point. Always traditional. Yeah. That's a good point. Yep. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. apples today. And, yeah, that's, and that's, a, that's a good new tradition. Yeah. But it's, but it's, a, it's a tradition, it, but yes. it's a new tradition. It's a new tradition, right. And that's why I think that idea of tradition versus contemporary or whatever is, it's kind of a red herring. Like, no, it's not really helpful. It's like we're all kind of, we all have our traditions, and um, the goal isn't to be traditional. Or whatever that might mean, the goal is to be faithful, and traditions help us with that. And like you say, there's new traditions, new, new wine for new wineskins as well. So take the good and the bad in both. Well, places. it gets people to church. So does giving away cars, but we don't do that yet. But uh... <laughs> oh yes, well, well, yes, you, you well played. Still gotta have scripture having the last word. Yes, right? exactly. 
That's exactly right. So scripture is still always going to norm it. And so even when we develop new traditions, we do what we can in order to reach people, to connect with them. We don't want to do it in a way that's unmoored or unrooted from the, from the teachings. Good. All right. Let's keep scooting along here. There's an objection then that is raised. People will say, well, wait a second. Uh, I'm not so sure that we can really take scripture seriously because, well, I have to show every pastor's favorite clip from Ricky Bobby because it is appropriate here. So this is from a Will Ferrell movie from probably 10, 15 years ago. And it doesn't really need any context. You'll just uh, enjoy. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and it always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger, or TR as we call them. And of course, my red-hot smoking wife, Carly, who's a stone-cold fox. Mm. Also want to thank you for my best friend and teammate, Cal Naughton Jr., who's got my back no matter what. Shake your mate. Dear Lord Baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your Baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. And it smells terrible, and our dogs are always mm. bothering with it. Mm. Dear tiny infant Jesus. Hey, uh, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Dear tiny Jesus, your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled-up fist palms. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party, too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus, like, with giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with, like, an angel band. And I'm in the front row, and I'm hammered drunk. Hey, Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Dear eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly, mm. but still omnipotent. Mm. We just thank you for all the races I've won, and $21.2 million. Woo! 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 Ow! Love that money! That I have accrued over this past season, also due to a binding endorsement contract that stipulates I mentioned Powerade at each grace. I just want to say that Powerade is delicious mm. and it, it cools you off on a hot summer day. And we look forward to Powerade's release of Mystic Mountain Blueberry. Mm. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. Amen. All right. <laughs> uh, it's a funny scene, but part of why it's funny, why it works, is that it gets us this notion like, well, wait a second, you know, you've got your, you, you like the bearded Jesus, you know, Mitch and I like bearded Jesus, but, you know, uh, maybe Jess likes baby Jesus, because she's like, well, you know, Malachi's so cute, 
And so, must be baby Jesus. I like my Jesus like this. You like, like, who's to say, right? And as you look around, even among churches, our world today, how do you know, right? There was a little quote from William Blake, a little poem. He says, both read the Bible day and night, but thou readst black where I read white. The objection that will come is like, so how can you say that your interpretation of the Bible is accurate or trustworthy when there's so many ways that people could read and understand it? Is this something that you've thought about or that you've heard people express or you've wrestled with yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a fair question. And it's one that we shouldn't just brush away and say, oh, uh, if, if you don't get it right, then you're just a, a patently false heretic. Uh, could be, but we, it's not, that, not quite that quick. Now, this came up, we talked about this a few weeks ago in our Harris's Bible study. So um, for some of you who were there, this is going to be some review. But um, within the early church, they wrestled with this as well. Because, as we said in that, that study, the heretics, heresies, did not spring from outside of the church, but from inside. It came up from people who were trying to be, well, I, I'll say that they were, they were trying to interpret and understand the Bible. They would use the Bible in order to justify their positions. And how could you tell then? If they're quoting the Bible and the quote-unquote good guys are quoting the Bible, the, both the Orthodox and the heretics are all using the same scripture, then who gets to decide? And uh, early uh, father of the church, a guy by the name of Irenaeus, gave, I think, kind of an ingenious analogy, which has been borne out through the ages of how biblical interpretation works. He says, listen, the Bible is like a mosaic. When you think of a mosaic... And a mosaic is made up of hundreds, perhaps thousands or more of little pieces of glass. And he says, think of the Bible like that mosaic, where all those little pieces of glass are like all the different parts and paragraphs and uh, verses of Scripture. Okay? Now, somebody can take all of those different little pieces of glass, those verses of Scripture, and assemble, uh, uh, they could render the picture of Jesus, which is the purpose of Scripture. What Jesus himself has said is that ultimately all Scripture points to him. That's why the Bible exists. I tell the confirmation kids on the first day, the point of the Bible is to point to Jesus. That's, that's it, fundamentally. Not just to tell us nice stories, not to, merely to give us you know, kind of good tips for living, but to point us to Jesus, our Redeemer. But Irenaeus goes on to say, well, someone else, though, can draw those same scriptures. They can use passages from the Bible, and instead of portraying a picture of Jesus, do a mosaic, a picture of a fox. They're still using the Bible, still using verses from Scripture, but they're not giving us an accurate rending, rendering and portrayal of what Jesus himself has told us the Bible is all about. And so the key, our foundational um, interpretive key for understanding and making sense of the Bible then is G Jesus himself. And it's still the case that nowadays, I mean, do people still use the Bible to justify pretty much anything? Yeah, absolutely, unfortunately. Um, Christian, non-Christian alike. But what we always want to be doing is to go back to the scriptures and to how God has revealed himself ultimately in Jesus. Um, you had asked a question earlier, Jeff. Like, how did we know wh what should be in a book of the Bible? Like, did they get some advance notice? Like, Paul, I've got you know assignment for you, a bunch of letters that I need you to write. No, not exactly. And so as um, the spirit-filled um, early teachers and leaders in the church were determining what belongs in the canon, 
What is the authoritative sacred writings um, for the church? They had four principles that they used in order to determine this. The first principle was, was it written by an apostle or a close friend of one? This is the principle of apostolicity. So name, somebody name a, a book or a letter of the New Testament. What's just a, one random Matthew. one? Matthew. Okay, so Matthew was one of the apostles. Galatians written by Paul. And Paul, he was not, as he would say, he was one untimely born. He wasn't part of the 12 that followed Jesus around during his ministry, but he was like the bonus apostle as Jesus revealed himself directly to Paul. Um, when you talk about uh, Mark, John Mark, he was uh, a friend of Peter for a time, an associate of Paul as well. He wasn't himself an apostle, but he hobnobbed, hung out with the apostles. Luke, likewise. John, of course, was one of the apostles, the beloved apostle, as he was known. Um, Acts was also written by Luke. And go all the way down the line. Um, the one exception is the exception that proves the rule, which is the letter of Hebrews, which we studied last year. We don't actually know who the author is to Hebrews, and that's part of the reason why Hebrews had a little bit of a tough time ultimately being accepted into the canon of the Bible. I think it was the last draft pick, actually. <laughs> because there was this question, that uncertainty, who actually authored, authored it? And ultimately, they decided, even though we don't know the authorship of it, um, there's enough good stuff in here, too, that fits our other um, categories that we're still going to use it. So those other criteria, then. First one, apostolicity. Second one is known as the principle of Catholicity. Not like Catholic as in Roman Catholic, but Catholic in its root sense of universal. That's what the word literally means in Greek. So the principle of Catholicity says, okay, this letter or this book was, has been accepted by churches throughout the world. Um, the way that it would be phrased is that all Christians at all times and all places have been reading and using this letter, this book. That's how they phrased it in, I think, in the 4th or the 5th century A.D., um, of course, the known world at that time was smaller than it is now, right? I'm not sure that they checked with people in Tierra del Fuego and say like, hey, have you guys been using Jude? Just wanted to get a quick uh, take on that. Um, <clears throat> but suffice it to say, in the known world, it was like, is, are these um, letters, are, uh, for instance, of Romans? Is that one that you guys have been reading? Yes, we take that as authoritative. We hear the voice of God speaking through that. Principle of Catholicity. The third one. Was it used in the church's worship? Okay, so as, as early Christians are worshiping, they're using not only the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, but also these writings of, um, of, the, of the apostles and their friends. And so that became a test in its own right. Doxological means, you know, a doxology has to do with worship and glorifying of God. And then fourth, put this last, but perhaps this is in many ways most important, it proclaims the good news of Jesus. This is the principle of evangelicalness, if that's a word. Um, in that root sense, uh, evangel is the word for gospel in the New Testament, evangelia. And so is it evangelical. When we read this letter, does it point us to Jesus as it is meant to do? So those four principles were the criteria that were used then to determine what belongs in the canon, what doesn't. For the vast majority of the New Testament, there's 27 books in the New Testament, for probably 22, 23 of those, it was like an open and shut case. There was not argument about it. Everybody knew four Gospels are in. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, these are all in. Um, there was some question and debate about Hebrews, about James, about Jude, about Revelation, 
And I think also about maybe like 2nd Peter or 2nd and 3rd John, something like that. Ultimately, they settled on including them in the canon. Um, but they, I won't say that they didn't have a, a second class status per se, but they were understood as being um, not quite as clear. They weren't the slam dunk that Matthew was, for instance. But question, this is some, this is some deep inside baseball type stuff here, but questions or thoughts about this, about you know, the canon and how books got in there. When um, I was in college, there was a really popular book, The Da Vinci Code. Any of you remember that? Um, and turned into a movie. And The Da Vinci Code presented this alternative narrative where it was like, oh, it was just a power play, actually. And it was just, you know, some cabal with a bunch of mustache twisters who, you know, they snuck in the books that they want, the ones that gave a certain vision of who Jesus is. And nothing could be further from the truth. Like, this is very much... Um, the, the church was of a piece together, knowing what that voice was they wanted to, to convey. And ultimately, Christ himself is the key that unlocks the scriptures. We won't go there now, but Revelation 5 points to the scroll. And John, the Apostle John, as he gets the vision, and he laments, how can we open up the scroll? He says, oh, the lamb who was slain, he is the one who has the power to open the scroll. Jesus is the key to interpret and to understand all of the Bible. And if you're reading it in such a way that it brings you back to Jesus, the, the Son of God, the Son of Man, for us, our Redeemer, then whatever else other niceties and subtleties of interpretation you might be missing, you're not going to be too far off base. Always brings us back to Jesus. Another way, this, this kind of speaks more to that um, secondary authority of emotion and experience, but in which um, early church fathers would talk about how you can know that this scripture is legitimate. Um, again, Irenaeus, he'd say he recognized that um, there were these kind of barbarian Christians. They were very untutored, uneducated people. But when some heretics came in, these are the Gnostics in this particular instance, um, proclaiming something that didn't square with what um, the faith as um, these barbarian Christians had heard it, they ran away screaming. And the reason was, as Irenaeus points out, alluding to John chapter 10, it says, my sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and they know me and they follow me and I give to them eternal life. Irenaeus would say, they can tell, Christians can tell when their voices have been attuned to the voice of their shepherd. They know their, their shepherd's voice. And so if they hear somebody teaching or saying something that's contrary to that, they're going to be able to sniff it out and say, this is not actually our good shepherd. And uh, somebody did an example of this. So this is an actual shepherd. And I, just, I just get such a kick out of this. So I don't know if any of you have had occasion to hang out with sheep. Oops. Let me try that again. Here we go. Get this idea of how the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. One more time.
chickens hear my voice and they know and they follow well yeah I, and i mean even with your dog right um but it's just it's a beautiful thing you see how the sheep they don't even pay attention to the other voices They're like no nope, that's not my shepherd and when it comes down to it when within the voice of holy scripture we hear the voice of our good shepherd speaking to us my sheep hear my voice and they know and they follow me and i give them eternal life all right so that's where we ultimately want to get to, and we see why and how it's so important. I want to, to close with this last story from Matthew chapter 17, which highlights the point for us. So turn there. So here we have the story, famous story of the transfiguration. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. See, ultimately, that's what Sola Scriptura is all about, is when we hear um, the voice voice of God, the voice of the law speaking to us, terrifying us, we fall flat on our faces. What we need to hear is the voice of Jesus, the one who has the last word, who comes to you and me and says, rise and have no fear. They stand up, they look up, and they see no one but Jesus only. So likewise, when we come to the Bible, when we hear um, the, the scriptures read, ultimately it's all about Jesus, Jesus only and that's why sola scriptura is so important. So whatever voices that you might be listening to that are getting into your head, that are living rent free, you're able to quiet them with the voice of Christ. Know that he says, rise and have no fear. Amen? All right. That's sola scriptura. Next week, we'll do our third sola, sola fide. Until then, keep deepening your roots. Thanks, guys. Thank <laughs> you.